Hey, Vsauce, Michael here. On July 1st of 2015, a long-standing ban was lifted. Visitors were finally allowed to take selfies at the White House. This is the first legal selfie ever taken on a White House tour. But a year before the ban was lifted, in February of 2014, I met with the president and secretly took an illegal selfie while on the toilet in the West Wing. Thanks, Obama. Why am I admitting to this crime now? Well, it's time for the truth. Who took the first selfie? Really? Very few people would call this a selfie, but it is the oldest known self-portrait, a depiction someone made of themselves that includes head and shoulders. It was sculpted more than 3,000 years ago by Pharaoh Akhenaten's first chief royal sculptor, a guy named Beck. Next to himself, Beck sculpted his wife, Taharit, making this also a contender for oldest known Ussi. But the roots of the selfie go back further than this. We have been making things that resemble ourselves in whole or in part, intentionally or not, for as long as there's been cause and effect. Just looking into a pool of water creates a kind of selfie, a primitive, ephemeral one that you can't preserve or send to anyone, but it is undeniably an image of the self made by the self. Even the earliest life forms on Earth were capable to some degree of self-discrimination. They could differentiate themselves from the environment around them. They have inside them, in some chemical form, a crude, pre-conscious sense of themselves. I call things like that a first-wave selfie. First-wave selfies are unintentional, automatic, or accidental resemblances something makes of itself in whole or in part, like prehistoric human footprints or the mental images animals have of their own bodies. The first big leap in selfie history, the second wave, began with the first intentional depictions of oneself. Second wave selfies include everything from Chauvet Cave's 32,000-year-old hand stencil prints to the paintings of Jan von Eyck and Judith Leister. But in the 19th century, self-depiction changed in another major way. A technology emerged that allowed likenesses of the self to be made faster and with less skill that seemed more accurate, less mediated, and more indexical than ever before. Photography ushered in the third wave selfie. In the fall of 1839, outside his family's lamp and chandelier store in Philadelphia, 30-year-old Robert Cornelius stood completely still for about 15 minutes in front of a camera he built using a modified opera glass and a sheet of silver-plated copper. The result was a significant image. It can be found on his gravestone in Philadelphia's Laurel Hill Cemetery. The Smithsonian calls it the first selfie. But they also don't. In that same fall of 1839, a man named Henry Fitz Jr. took a photograph of himself in Baltimore. Smithsonian Magazine and pretty much everyone else has called Cornelius's selfie the first. But in their archives, the Smithsonian calls Fitz Jr.'s the first. The reason for this confusion is that, honestly, we don't know which of these came first. All we can be sure of is that neither of them is the first. 
Hippolyte Bayard, a Frenchman, wrote of taking a photo of himself in 1837, two years before these, but it's been lost. And other, even earlier examples may have been lost as well. Because these are photographs people took of themselves, it's largely uncontroversial to call them selfies. But you know, they're not like selfie selfies. If you've seen my video, Is Cereal Soup, you know what I just did there. Contrastive focus reduplication. That's when you repeat a word in order to focus on prototypical examples in contrast to edge cases. For example, we went on a date last night, but you know, it wasn't a date date. In that statement, I'm contrasting what I did last night, which might have been a date, to a true date date, which is obviously a date. Okay, anyway, the point is, no one called these selfies when they were taken. They were photographic self-portraits. The word selfie wouldn't even exist for another 160 years after they were taken. So at some point between this and this, our relationship to self-depiction changed and our vocabulary had to expand to discuss it. What rough beast emerged to make the coining of selfie necessary? Well, let's keep going. Around 1846, Czech photographer M.V. Lobethal took the earliest known selfie with a mirror. This, of course, would become a classic selfie technique. Mirrors provided an easy, early way to capture the self with a camera. But in my opinion, this mirror selfie from around 1900 is the most arresting. I think you die at least three times. Once when your body stops living, Again, usually sometime later, when your name is spoken for the last time. But now, thanks to photography, more and more of us are able to save ourselves from the third, the last time an image of you is seen. The identity of this woman is unknown. That makes it the oldest known selfie taken by a person whose name we have forgotten. This is the oldest known example of the classic outstretched arm selfie technique. It was taken by Joseph Byron in 1909. Images like these were a significant step toward the eventual fourth wave selfie. The presence of a camera or arms or poles in the shot, evidence of how it was made, are hallmarks of the modern day selfie stereotype. For example, a 2013 ad campaign for the Cape Times reimagined famous historical photographs as selfies, and in every single one, an arm connecting the subject to the camera was used. Five years after Byron's armed selfie, Anastasia Nikolaevna Romanova, the youngest daughter of Tsar Nicholas II and great-granddaughter to Britain's Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, took this photo of herself. She was 13 years old at the time, so many have claimed it to be the first selfie ever taken by a teenager. But that's not true. In 1852, 61 years earlier, British chemist William Henry Perkin took this photo of himself when he was just 14. However, even though Anastasia wasn't the first teenager to take a selfie, in another way, she was. Unlike Perkins, whose shot feels like a self-portrait, she took pictures that feel much more like we today would call selfies. The photos she took were personal. She sent them to friends to share her mood and daily life. 
Here she is posing with fake novelty teeth in 1915 or 16. Four years after taking this famous selfie, her camera was confiscated. And not long after, Bolshevik revolutionaries executed her and her entire family together in a basement. Conclusive evidence of her death in 1918 wasn't uncovered until 2007. Although her work was cut short, she pioneered the use of photography as a social behavior, as a way to communicate, not just commemorate. She has been called the Kardashian of her day, but despite her influence, she was more of a trendsetter for hairstyles than photography. She didn't usher in a worldwide shift in behavior where young people everywhere started taking selfies. Camera manufacturers didn't rush to make self-portraiture easier, and articles weren't written about how great or how scary it was that young people were taking pictures of themselves. Though the modern-day selfie still wasn't born, it continued to gestate and kick within the womb. One such kick was the use of sticks and poles to activate a camera's shutter. In 1925, newlyweds Arnold and Helen Hogg used a long pole to take this picture. In 1934, Helmer Larson used a fallen tree branch to snap this selfie with his wife Nanny in Sweden. On Reddit, Chooch37 shared his grandfather using a selfie stick in the late 1940s. Here's one from 1957. And going back to 1920, here's Joseph Byron taking a handheld photograph with others. I mention this image because a second camera captured how it was taken, giving us an early depiction of what is now the recognizable human selfie pose. Now, what I think makes this image so significant is that it's another early taste of the selfie as we know it today. As Jens Ruschitz pointed out in exploring the selfie, if you Google self-portrait, you get a lot of self-portraits. There's only one image that shows someone making a self-portrait, Norman Rockwell's famous triple self-portrait. But if you Google selfie, a lot of what you get aren't selfies. They're pictures of people taking selfies. For the selfie as we know it today, the pose of taking one is just as, if not more salient, than the actual result. Blogs and articles containing outrage over people taking selfies in inappropriate places or when they should be behaving differently rarely complain about the actual images. They dislike the performance. In 2015, Joanne Baterna Patania published a book of pictures of people taking selfies from which she had removed the environment, giving us what feel like selfie poses preserved in specimen jars. <laughs> the idea that those taking photos can be a nuisance didn't begin with selfies. Far from it. There's a long tradition of photographers, especially tourists, raising eyebrows for being annoying, centering themselves over the location, and being predictably herd-like. For example, the Pisa pushers found in Italy. The modern-day selfie that was to come, however, makes a person look like a tourist everywhere they go. Not because everything suddenly became a landmark, but because people have always loved looking at themselves. And as cameras became smaller and easier to handle, it was inevitable that people would start snapping more self-portraits. Vivian Dorothy Meyer took really cool mirror selfies in the 1950s and 60s, but she kept them to herself. 
Her selfies were unknown and unpublished during her lifetime. A couple of years before her death, she failed to make payments on a storage unit she rented, and her works were auctioned off. Six months after her death in 2009, a collector who had acquired them uploaded her images to Flickr, and they went viral, inspiring exhibitions, a documentary, a road in Paris was even named after her. The popularization of instant cameras in the 60s and 70s made taking selfies physically and mentally easier. You didn't need to know how to develop the film yourself or feel self-conscious turning in selfies to be developed. But instant cameras with mirrors on the front didn't come around until decades later. Selfies still hadn't reached a tipping point. In 1969, Michael Collins took the first reverse selfie, a photograph that contains everyone but yourself. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin are in this lander right here, and every human, living or dead at that time, is on this ball of rock. Only Collins himself, behind the lens, is absent. In 1983, Hiroshi Weta submitted a patent for a telescopic extender for supporting a compact camera, an early selfie stick. And two years prior, Lester Wisbrod started what was to become a personal tradition, using his new autofocusing compact camera to snap selfies with famous people. Wisbrod was the pioneer of the celebrity selfie. Still though, no one was using the word selfie, Selfies hadn't become a thing yet. But then, something happened in Japan. In 1995, 19-year-old Toshikawa Hiromi, known as Hiromix, was nominated for the New Cosmos of Photography Award by world-renowned photographer Nobuyoshi Araki. She submitted a portfolio of snapshots she'd taken of her daily life, and she won the grand prize. There was already a unique culture of photo diary and photo booth use among young people in Japan, but Hiromix's sudden fame amongst teenagers and the educated elite made the practice a thing. Suddenly, young people all over Japan wanted to be like her. The New York Times called it Hiromix syndrome. Increased demand for cameras that made self-portraiture and proto-Instagramming easier led camera manufacturers to speed up the release of features that served immediate, frequent photography. Hiromix took a lot of photos, tens of thousands, and her work generated polarized reactions. Some critics adored her, while others found it all baffling. Now, by the time selfies were called selfies, the same debate was started again but it was about the behavior Hiromix had brought into focus more than a decade before. You know, it's hard to say who took the first selfie, but in my opinion, Hiromix took the first selfie selfie. Her work hastened and christened the arrival of the fourth wave selfie, the selfie as we know it today. Now, if it hadn't been her, it would have been someone else. People love looking at themselves, and it was becoming easier and easier to do so. But Hiromix popularized taking pictures of yourself as a social sharing activity, more akin to speaking than remembering, less a memory than a message. Nowhere is this more clear than in the story of the first camera phone picture. On June 11, 1997, 
while his wife was in labor, Philippe Kahn jury-rigged together a makeshift system involving his StarTac flip phone, a Casio QV, and a Toshiba laptop. When his daughter was born, he took a photo with the camera and used the laptop and phone connection to immediately email the image to more than 2,000 people. Social media is strongly associated with the fourth wave selfie, but as we've seen, it wasn't its origin. Instead, social media was simply a mouth that showed up later and demanded to be fed them. Online, we have no bodies. We can't just walk in and be seen. We have to upload images of our bodies for them to be there. Selfies are an easy solution because they don't require other people's help. But on top of that, there's a sense in which a photo of yourself taken by someone else is that person's point of view. It's their story. But a selfie? Well, a selfie's point of view doesn't belong to another person. When I look at a selfie of you, I'm not a third observer looking at you through someone else's eyes. It's just me looking at you. Selfies allow us to be online firsthand, not secondhand. In the same way that brown bears who migrated to the cold lands of the north evolved pale guard hairs and became polar bears, as humans migrated into the cold lands of the screen, they evolved selfies. By 2006, everyone knew that something was happening. The New York Times published an article that year about how young people were suddenly taking a lot of photos of themselves. Was it weird? What did it mean? Not once in the article is the word selfie used. But it could have been. Because sometime between 1995 and 2006, the word selfie was born. Selfie with a Y had been a word since the 1600s. It meant self-centered or selfish. But selfie with an IE is new. The earliest recorded usage of it is from a September 13, 2002 post on Dr. Carl's Self-Serve Science Forum. Australian Nathan Hope uploaded an image he took of how busted up his lip had gotten, and he wrote, Sorry about the focus, it was a selfie. Hope has been hailed as the inventor of the word selfie, but says himself that he probably heard it somewhere else first. Which is likely. The word selfie is a hypocrism, a pet name, an affectionate, familiar, cuter version of an existing word. Australians are famous for doing this. Barbecue, Barbie. Mosquito, Mozzie. Australian, Aussie. Self-portrait, selfie. They don't only use IE, they love O, S, and Z too. Australian English has given us probs, rando, totes, saws, preggers, and yes, even doggo. MySpace was an early incubator of thriving selfie colonies. But in 2004, when Facebook launched as a serious social media platform for people at elite universities, there was a brief feeling that selfies were falling out of favor. However, when the iPhone 4 debuted with a front-facing camera in 2010, the selfie was declared officially back. In 2013, usage of the word selfie had jumped 17,000% in the last year, and Oxford Dictionaries declared it the word of the year. 
everyone knew what a selfie was. We started calling things that existed before the word selfies as well. But that is an anachronym, a word used out of place, in time. Anachronyms can be words that have lingered around too long, like when we say we're dialing a number on a smartphone, even though actual turning dials are no longer involved. Or when we call this tinfoil, although it's actually the cheaper and more durable aluminum foil that superseded it. Anachronyms can also be words from today, like selfie, that barge back into the past, like calling these medieval church singers the first boy band. Nailing down the definition of a selfie in the modern sense is tricky, of course. Does a selfie need to be a photograph? If not, why? If so, do I need to be holding the camera? Does the use of a timer or a drone I'm not even touching mean that it's not a selfie or just a different kind of selfie? Are humans a selfie since God made us in his image? Because of questions like that, I prefer what I've been doing in this video. Just allow a selfie to mean anything that something has made that resembles itself or part of itself. That covers a lot of stuff, but can be broken down into four waves. First wave selfies are unintentional. The second wave began with the first deliberate depictions of oneself. The third, with photography's promise of recognizable self-depictions that were significantly more accessible. The fourth wave is when selfies became a thing, a cultural phenomenon motivated by a desire not just to have images, but to be images. Throughout the 20th century especially, we found ourselves increasingly surrounded by images, news, and travels, and products, and stories. The entire world outside our head could be seen like never before. Not in person, but through images. In the midst of this image world was the human animal, an organism that got to look at images, but wasn't one. Which was too bad, because to be an image was to be something. Well, selfies gave us that power. They put it in our own hands. Photography allows more of us than ever before to delay the third death. But the fourth wave selfie flattens the boundaries of time and space now. We can be anywhere, whenever. Does my face need to be depicted for it to be a selfie? Well, in October of 2013, Kim Kardashian posted this image on Instagram. Within a month, Belfie had been added to the Urban Dictionary. A Belfie is a selfie of your butt. But selfie, Belfie. Belfie guides and histories and even a Belfie stick soon followed. And this all raises a serious question about society. If a selfie of your butt is called a Belfie, shouldn't a selfie of your face be called a Felfie? And as always, thanks for watching. Let me show you something I've been working on. It is a star projector. It puts stars all over your bedroom. And who doesn't love that? Me. Because it's always just the same stars I could see if I went outside. That's why mine is different.
It shows the night sky, not from Earth, but as seen on TRAPPIST-1e, an exoplanet that was one of the first targets of the new Webb telescope, because it's very likely to be friendly to life. Whether or not anything lives there, we don't know yet. But what we do know is that it is the furthest known habitable exoplanet from which the naked human eye could still see our sun. You can turn on this projector and see us just as others might. Alien others. Problem is, the Curiosity Box is a limited edition thing, and the box this comes in already sold out. That's why it's important to join now. We are now taking pre-orders for our winter box, and for the holidays, it's 50% off. I won't spill too many beans, but the winter box contains something that will help you if you have no choice. Don't miss our best deal of the year. Get your first box for just 30 bucks. That's 50% off by using code BLACKFRIDAY. And don't forget that Mel Science is now part of our family. It's the perfect way to get your kids thinking and curious. Let me put my brain food into your gray matter mouth. Join today. Hey, Vsauce, Michael here. Gregory W. Nimitz registered some land containing $492 quintillion worth of platinum. The land was right here. Well, over here. An asteroid named 433 Eros. Not a single sovereign nation on Earth recognizes human claims to extraterrestrial real estate but he did it anyway. And then, less than a year later, NASA landed a probe on the asteroid. They called it the first asteroid we had ever landed a probe on. Nimitz called it parking space number 29 and promptly sent NASA a $20 parking ticket. But so far, NASA and the US Attorney General have dismissed the fine, saying that his claim to own the asteroid is without legal merit. But why? Plenty of organizations exist that will gladly take your money in return for land on the moon, Venus, Mars. And if you had enough money to go to the moon, nothing is legally stopping you from moving there, building a house with a significant other, having some kids, and turning your moon house into a moon home. It wouldn't be trespassing or squatting or stealing. The 1979 Moon Treaty says that no one can own any part of outer space ever, but only 11 states have signed it. However, 129 nations have signed and or ratified the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, which says that outer space is not subject to national appropriation. It says nothing about a private individual or a company owning part of outer space. But without the recognition and support of at least one sovereign nation, what does ownership really mean? I mean, I can claim anything I want. I can claim to own Prospect Park in Brooklyn. But just saying that I do, or even moving there and living in Prospect Park, wouldn't entitle me to the rights that usually go along with ownership, unless someone with a bunch of power agreed that I owned it and could enforce that ownership and keep others from claiming to also own it. 
In the past, explorers had few qualms about claiming to own land, even if other humans were already there, because they had power on their side, namely plenty of guns, germs, and steel. To paraphrase con artist Canada Bill Jones, you know what beats four aces? A gun. Or as Loblob pointed out, McDonald's actually does serve breakfast after 10.30 if you have a gun. If you claimed some land on the moon as your own and moved in, would you also have to hire your own lunar police and cis-lunar military to defend it and to keep others from challenging your claim? Pretty much. That's kind of the problem. Currently, it is risky for individuals or corporations to claim and use extraterrestrial territory because the Outer Space Treaty says that outer space is the common heritage of mankind. It belongs to all of us, and only to all of us. Many interpretations of the Outer Space Treaty predict that powerful things like nations would be reluctant to come to your defense should someone else want to move in or cause trouble or dispute your extraterrestrial claim. Maybe you could get a sovereign nation to weigh in on your behalf by declaring universal jurisdiction, but that would need to be for an incredibly terrible, heinous crime, a crime against all of humanity, not just a dispute over a few space rocks. Catherine Doldorina from the Institute of Air and Space Law at McGill University suggests that considering outer space the common heritage of mankind has slowed space exploration. You see, the Outer Space Treaty was based on the Antarctic Treaty, which says that the entire continent shall never become the scene or object of international discord. Discord is not a good thing, but without an incentive to profit from it, not much has happened there, as opposed to the Arctic, where a resource boom is currently underway. If people felt safer appropriating and taking advantage of space, of celestial bodies, if technological development was more incentivized, would we already have orbiting tourist attractions and lunar hotels? Maybe. But here is what you can currently own in outer space. Stuff you put there, and to a certain extent, orbits. The Outer Space Treaty says that the stuff we left on the moon, anything put into space, remains property of the original owner forever. Orbits around Earth are temporarily granted by the International Telecommunication Union, a UN agency, but they don't work like typical real estate on Earth. When a group of equatorial nations attempted to claim orbits above their land boundaries without planning on putting satellites there, their claim was largely ignored. So you not only need to ask the UN for an orbit and get permission, you also need to use it and fill it. It's a little disappointing that we don't know how lunar real estate works, or if it will. But it's exciting to know that we, within our lifetimes, might have a chance to be part of the solution. A unique generation not visiting space for the first time, but homesteading it for the first time. Here's another unresolved space law quandary. 
If an alien landed in your backyard, intelligent life from beyond Earth, and you shot it with a gun, dressed it, and then cooked up you and your family some alien meat fajitas, would that be hunting or murder? We literally don't know. On Earth, we have human rights, but there are no alien rights. Maybe it would fall under the category of cultural vandalism, an act that's not necessarily illegal, but is a giant bummer to the rest of humanity. This has happened before, not with aliens, but with paintings. In 2003, the Chapman brothers purchased one of the few remaining sets of Goya's fantastic Disasters of War. Instead of displaying the works for the public, they defaced them by drawing clown and puppy heads on the people. They called the work insult to injury. In protest, a man threw red paint on Jake Chapman when he appeared at Modern Art Oxford. But at the end of the day, what the Chapman brothers did wasn't illegal. They owned the paintings. Vandalizing the moon or killing a peaceful alien aren't illegal acts, but just like defacing historical paintings, they seem wrong on some deeper level, especially since because in most museums, you usually can't even touch the paintings. But who was the first person to touch the moon with their bare hands? I mean, the guys who walked around on the moon wore spacesuits. They had material in between their skin and the moon. Well, to be sure, you already have the moon in your hands. Well, little moons. Lanula, the crescent-shaped area at the base of your fingernail where tissue is thicker and the red vascular structures underneath are more hidden, making it white. And to be even more sure, at the quantum level, touch is problematic. As I've covered before, atomically speaking, matter never really contacts other matter in the conventional sense. You can't truly touch anything. Minute Physics called it interaction over a short distance. With that in mind, NASA says that Terry Slezik was the first person to touch the moon with his bare hands. He was a technician in quarantine who accidentally got lunar soil smeared all over his hand while removing film magazines from the astronauts' cameras. But when Armstrong and Aldrin returned to the lunar module after their moonwalk and removed their helmets, they came into contact with lunar dust they tracked in on their suits. They even reported its odor, saying it smelled of spent gunpowder or ashes, possibly because it oxidized on contact with the air in the cabin. Point is, the first few breaths of moon-dusty air that Armstrong and Aldrin took in were our first fleshly contact with the moon. Or were they? Walking around on Earth every day, I am surrounded by material that recently was in outer space. Hundreds of metric tons of extraterrestrial rock falls to Earth every year, some from the moon, but most from asteroids. 
ejected by a high-speed impact and eventually caught by Earth's gravity. Some pieces are big enough to see, but most are pulverized by our atmosphere during entry into tiny particles that disperse in the air, becoming a tiny fraction of the very dust and dirt we clean up and breathe in every day. There's microscopic space dust, pieces of asteroids and even the moon, all around us. In fact, there might be microscopic pieces of the moon under your bed right now, or even under your fingernails. Which means the first human to have fleshly contact with lunar material was the first Homo sapien hundreds of thousands of years ago to walk on dirt. We are still studying exactly how much cosmic dust is in the air that we breathe every day, but it's safe to say that every once in a while you inhale some. Material that was recently in outer space, some of which thousands of years ago was on the moon. Was the moon. And just like other particulates in our atmosphere, large enough pieces get trapped in the mucus that protects our lungs, meaning that picking your nose is gross, but every once in a while, a booger could literally be out of this world. And as always, thanks for watching. Vsauce, Michael here. Do you want to see the most illegal thing I own? It's a penny from 2027. That's right, it is a piece of counterfeit US currency. Or is it? There are no 2027 pennies today, which means that this is a counterfeit of an original that doesn't exist yet. I mean, sure, if you didn't look at the date, this could pass as real, but will it not truly be counterfeit until 2027? Well, what we do know is that its novelty has a lifespan. It's really cool to show people today. It's a penny from the future. But in 2027, it will become indistinguishable from a common penny and it will cease to be as interesting. I cannot tell you where I got this. But the point is, I can break the law. I am free. Perhaps not free from punishment, but nonetheless, here we are. The thing is though, I cannot break the laws of physics. Nothing can. Why? Today, I wanna to look at the lawful behavior of spinning. Let's start with a physics classic. As a spinning ice skater pulls their body in closer, they spin faster and faster. It's really cool, but what is accelerating their rotation? What is pushing them around faster and faster? You can try this at home with a chair that spins and some really heavy books in both hands. Now to get started spinning, I'm gonna have Jake give me a push, but I don't need Jake. No, 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 watch this. With him gone, I can nonetheless speed myself up by just pulling the books in. If I move the books out, I slow down. Somehow, pulling the books in speeds me up around. 
Now, if you look up why this happens, you'll probably be told that it is because of the conservation of angular momentum. Oh. Oh. The conservation of angular momentum. I love demonstrations of it, and this is one of my favorites. This is a Hoberman sphere, a toy that collapses and expands. Doesn't it sort of remind you of me with the books far from my body and then the books close to my body? And it behaves in much the same way. I need to give it some angular momentum to start, but once I do, if I bring all of that mass towards the axis of rotation, it speeds up, and then it slows down. And then it speeds up, and then it slows down. Speeds up, slows down. I love this, thank you, conservation of angular momentum. But what are you? Well, if you look it up, this is what you will find. For a particle in circular motion around some center of rotation C, the angular momentum of the particle is defined as the product of the particle's mass, the particle's instantaneous velocity, v, and the particle's distance from the center of rotation, r. m, v, r. This is angular momentum. If you divided me and the chair and the books I'm holding into a bunch of tiny little particles and found the MVRs for every one of those particles and summed them all up, you would have the angular momentum of the entire system of me, the chair, and the books. But notice that this is just a mathematical expression combining three different measures. It's not a physical substance you could pull out of a particle and hold in your hand or put in a jar and study. It's kind of like, oh, I don't know, taking like my weight and multiplying it by the number of countries on Earth and then multiplying it by the time. However, unlike something like that, this concept is really useful because we have found that in our universe, over time, it is conserved. If the particle is pulled towards the center of rotation, its R value will go down. But angular momentum is conserved, so one of these other variables must go up. Well, at low speeds, mass is essentially constant, so the only option is for the velocity of the particle to increase, for the particle to spin around faster than it was before. If the R value gets smaller, the velocity must get larger, or else a law has been broken. But how do atoms and molecules know to follow this law? I mean, is there some kind of physics police force in the universe bullying everything into compliance? How do all the atoms I pull in know to speed up, and why do they always obey? Are laws, like embodied presences, guiding matter around? No. I have with me right now three things. A lamp, a nail, and a shadow. Gotcha! I actually have four things with me. The fourth is Ink's Astonishing Ruler, designed by Vsauce. If you're subscribed to the Curiosity Box, you already have one, or it's on its way to you. And if you're not subscribed to the Curiosity Box, well, you're missing out on the fruits of my mind. I have always wanted a ruler like this. So, I made one. And now I and you can have one. It is exactly one light nanosecond long which means that this is the distance light travels in a vacuum during one billionth of a second. If I hold my hand just that far away from my eye, I am seeing my hand as it was a billionth of a second in the past. Pretty cool. Now, this ruler allows you to measure lengths of things in light picoseconds, sound microseconds, 
micro-Everests, that's one millionth the height of Everest, beard fortnights, decimal inches, and of course, good old centimeters. Now, if you asked me, hey, Mike, why is the shadow of the nail four and a half centimeters long? Well, I would say, who's Mike? <laughs> but then I would be helpful, and I would answer that the length of the shadow is caused by the height of the nail and the position of the light source. And that's a pretty good explanation, because if the nail were taller, and or if the light source were lower, the shadow would be longer. Or if the nail were shorter, and or the light source was higher, the shadow would be smaller. Now, these three measures, the nail's height, the light's position, and the shadow's length, are all related mathematically, such that if you gave me only two of them, I could figure out the third. Always. So, I could declare this relationship to be a law, but that does not mean that the law causes them to all have the measure that they do. For example, if you asked me, hey, um, why is the nail six centimeters tall? What causes the nail to have that height? Well, if I said, well, the nail's height is caused by the shadow's length and the light's position, you'd be like, uh, as if. <laughs> Am I right? I mean, sure, we can figure out the nail's height by knowing about the shadow and the light, but that does not mean that they are causing the nail to have the height that it does. To know why the nail is six centimeters tall, we'd have to ask whoever manufactured it or whoever sets nail standards or whatever. The point here is that we should not confuse relationships, laws, with causes. Explanations that involve the causal reasons for things are often better. But what is an explanation? Well, that's easy to answer. Explanations help us understand things. But what does it mean to understand? Does it mean to not stand up fully? Or does it mean to stand underneath and to look at from below? If I can understand something, can I also overstand something? Well, as it turns out, the under in understand does not mean beneath or below. Instead, it means inside, to stand, surrounded by, to be a part of. Now, this sense of under is quite common. For example, when you say, ah, well, under those circumstances, you don't mean, well, when those circumstances are overhead and I'm under them. Instead, you mean, if I find myself in those circumstances. And that is how under is used in understand. To understand something is to stand in the midst of it, to be part of it, and to be within it. And that is helpful to keep in mind. I cannot walk into something that's crumpled up and closed off. To truly understand something, it needs to be opened up for me, unfolded. And that is what an explanation should do. The word explain literally means to flatten, plain, out, x explain, to make flat. Now, if you'll excuse the analogy, if this is a story I want to read, and it's all crumpled up, a physical law basically just tells me a summary of the story. It'll tell me how the story ends, what language and grammatical rules were used to write it. But an explanation will flatten the page out and allow me to see the details, an actual word, and the word that follows it, and so on, all the way through. So let's unfold the phenomenon of me speeding up my rotation when I pull the books in and find a physical, mechanical cause for that increased rotation. I have here two different circular motion paths around 
the center of rotation, which we'll call C. Now, when a particle is traveling in this outer ring and is suddenly pulled in, it doesn't stop moving around and suddenly just go right in. Instead, it takes a bit of a curved path like this. Now, this is really interesting because in order for a particle to be in circular motion, it must have two things. It must have, put the particle there, it must have a velocity that is tangential to the path, but it must also have a centripetal force, a center-seeking force that always points towards the center of rotation. Now notice that these two arrows are at a right angle to each other. So the centripetal force is not speeding up or slowing down the particle. It's just changing its direction constantly. Ta-da, circular motion. However, when the particle is pulled in and it follows this curved path to this inner orbit, its instantaneous velocity is no longer perpendicular to the centripetal force. Its uh, tangential velocity tangent to that curve is gonna look something like this. But notice that now the centripetal force is no longer at a right angle. The force that is changing that particle's direction is no longer at a right angle to its velocity. Instead, if this is the normal to its velocity, the centripetal force is pulling the particle forward ahead in its rotation, speeding up its rotational velocity. So as you can see, I speed up when I pull the books in because when I accelerate the books towards myself, I'm not just accelerating them towards myself, I'm also accelerating them around. Now likewise, if a particle were to be pushed out from an orbit like this into a larger orbit, it's gonna not, uh, you know, it's not gonna do this. It's not gonna go, oh, time to go here, Wink, straight line. No, it's gonna go like this. Okay, I'll go to the larger orbit. But look, now on this line, the particle's instantaneous velocity is something like this, and the centripetal force is not perpendicular to that line. This is, let me give that a little V. Oh yeah, nice labeling. All right, so, oh wait, now you can see it, whoops. All right, so this is the one we're talking about though. This is the one that matters. All right, so the, uh, the, the normal to that velocity might be like this. So now notice that the centripetal force is actually working against the velocity of the particle decelerating it. So, of course, it slows down. When I move the books further out, my rotation slows down because moving them out is also decelerating them. Now, this is why it is harder to pull your arms in when you're spinning than when you're not because you're not just moving your arms into yourself, you're also accelerating them in the direction of their rotation. Not only is the magnitude of angular momentum conserved, so is the direction. But what is the direction of something's spin? Well, it seems easy enough, right? Look at this. What's the direction of its spin? Clockwise. Or is it? Someone standing on the other side would say that it was traveling counterclockwise. Oh. Now, interestingly, this means that if you were to ask the face of a clock which way its hands spun, it would say counterclockwise, of course. In order to unambiguously differentiate the direction of rotation, we need a tool that has no axis of symmetry in any of the three spatial dimensions of our universe. And luckily, I've got a tool just like that in here. I've been keeping it fresh and, oh. <laughs> I could have sworn I, oh, there it is. It's my right hand. A human hand is asymmetrical in the X, Y, and Z directions. We've got 
Thumb, no thumb. Wrist, fingertips. Palm, knuckles. Now because of this property, if we orient two pairs of opposite sides in a particular way, the one remaining pair will be locked. Now, my fingers can only really curl in the palm direction, on the palm side. So if I have my fingertips in the direction of a wheel spin, curled such that an object on that spinning object travels from my wrist around to my fingertips, well then my thumb will only point in one direction, no matter which side I'm on. From behind, this is now going clockwise, but the right hand rule still puts my thumb backwards. That's very cool. We call the direction that the right hand thumb is pointing the direction of the wheel's angular momentum. But we could also use the left hand. We'd get opposite directions than the right hand gives us, but so long as we all agree to use the same hand, we will all always be on the same page. But as it turns out, of course, the right hand was chosen, and so determining the direction of angular momentum and velocity is called the use of the right hand rule. Okay, so now that we know how to find the direction of angular momentum, we can explore how that part of it is also conserved. I have here a very special wheel. Whoa! <laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy looking. That's because I wanted it to be really massive, so I wrapped a chain around it. I'm not sure it's really that safe, but oh man, is the effect good. All right, now let's say that, I gotta have my right hand free, let's say that I start spinning the wheel like this. The direction of its angular momentum can be found using the right hand rule. I curl my fingers in the direction of rotation so that something on the wheel is going from my wrist to my fingertips, and I look at which way my thumb is pointing. Well, it's pointing up. Let's call up the positive direction. I don't know the magnitude of the angular momentum of the wheel right now, it's some number, um, but let's just call it L. And since it's up, we'll call it positive. I could call it negative. All that matters is that I can differentiate uh, one direction from the opposite. All right, wonderful. So notice that if I spun the wheel this way, I'd have to turn my right hand over to curl my fingers properly. Now my thumb is pointing down, so this would be negative. Let's call the magnitude of this wheel's angular momentum L, positive L. Well, if I got the wheel spinning so that it had an angular momentum of positive L, if I then turned it upside down, its angular momentum will have changed direction. It would have swapped from being positive L to negative L. However, if nothing else is interfering, that can't happen without angular momentum being conserved. So what plus negative L is positive L, our original? Well, positive 2L. And that is what we will see happen. If I spin this wheel like this, such that it has an angular momentum of positive L, and then I turn it upside down, something else will have to have an angular momentum of positive 2L. So like imagine my thumb being twice as long. What is that something else? Well, it'll be me in the chair. This is very cool. So let's make sure we know what's about to happen. I'm gonna spin the wheel this way. Then I'm going to turn it upside down. And so I'm going to see myself in the chair wind up rotating this way. I'll rotate that way. All right, so what I'm gonna do is have Scott step in and give this wheel a nice, healthy spin in that direction. So it has an angular momentum of positive L. I'll take my foot off the ground when he's done, so I'm in more or less isolated system, and I'll turn the wheel upside down and I should go that way. Whoa! Angular momentum is conserved. That's pretty cool, but the conservation of angular momentum, either its magnitude or, uh, <laughs> or its direction is not why turning the wheel upside down spun me this way. 
whoops, I kicked my empty cup, uh, container. Anyway, what caused me to move? Well, if you do this yourself, you will feel the handles of the wheel literally pushing you, putting a torque on your body. And it has everything to do with a concept I have covered in my spinning video and my video on Ding about Euler's disc. If the wheel isn't spinning and I push it down right here, it'll tilt like that, right? Not very surprising. That's the kind of tilt we would expect. But when the wheel is spinning, all the pieces of matter out here, well, they all have some velocity before I hit them. For example, when a piece of matter on the wheel is out here, it's moving backwards. And when I push it down, it doesn't suddenly stop moving backwards. The wheel doesn't stop. Instead, the pieces I'm pushing are now going to go backwards, as they already were, and down. So they go backwards and down, and then they come back up, and the entire wheel is found to tilt this way, like, towards me, 90 degrees ahead from where I actually pushed it down. A push down here causes the wheel to move like this. A push down here would cause the wheel to tilt like this. A push up here would cause the wheel to tilt like, let's see, 90 degrees ahead in the rotation, like this. And this and this is exactly what I'm doing when I turn the wheel upside down. So when I put a torque on the wheel to turn it while it's spinning like this, the wheel actually turns this way. But I have two hands holding it. My left hand winds up getting pushed backwards and my right hand pulled forwards. That puts a torque on my body, which causes me, being pushed back here and pulled forward here, it causes me to be turned. And so I turn this way, the way that we saw in the demo, in the chair. And that is the physical origin of the phenomenon we just witnessed. The key point here is that nothing you have seen happen today happened because of the conservation of angular momentum. Physical laws don't cause anything to happen. But plenty of things are demonstrations of their truth. Now don't get me wrong. I love physical laws. They truly do represent a conquering of mystery. When we find a way to project definite numbers onto reality and make predictions, that's amazing. But not coupled with causal, mechanical, physical explanations, their generality can come across like magic. Now magic is fun for sure, but congruences between mathematics and reality? Oh, and that's a sweet nectar. In mathematics, we get to make the rules, pick the axioms. We can even decide what kinds of reasoning are allowed or not. And after doing so, we get to play around and see what happens. Mathematics is the playing of games. Science is finding out what game you're playing. And we still don't know what game we have found ourselves in, but we should keep wondering and never be happy until we get answers that satisfy us. Stay curious, and as always, thanks for watching. I have some pretty exciting news to share with you. As of today, for the rest of the year, every single episode of Mindfield, all three seasons, all 24 episodes, will be free to view all around the world. I am thrilled. So go and check those out. There's a very special, well actually two very special things coming on this channel this month. Can't wait for you to see them. In the meantime, if you need more of me, and I always need more of me, check out Ding. I've done about 15 videos this year over there. It's a blast. We learn a lot over there, and things often get a little bit weird. You know, well, 
I guess, maybe. I don't know, check it out and find out. And as always, thanks for watching. Hey, Vsauce, Michael here. Earlier this month, I traveled to Kourou in French Guiana with Euronews to watch the launch of a Vega rocket. If it happened while I was there. Waiting at the observation point with only minutes to go, the launch was postponed because of weather. Even though the rocket scientists were using Comic Sans, the rocket didn't take off until the day after I had to be back in London. But it made me think, we can send satellites into orbit and people to the moon and predict solar eclipses thousands of years into the future, but yet we cannot reliably predict which way the wind will be blowing in the next hour or so. How can such monumental cosmic movements, light minutes or light years away from us, be understood, whereas the weather, which happens in the very same layer of the atmosphere we live in every day, remains such a mystery? Well, it has to do with the limits of what we know and what we can know. Planetary positions and terrestrial weather in the future are determined by their initial conditions. But over a short time scale, predicting the future position of a planet involves fewer variables than the weather. In order to accurately predict the weather, you need to know the complete and exact conditions of every molecule of air on Earth, how those molecules will interact with each other and the Earth, and how they will feed back and influence themselves by changing other molecules. This makes it incredibly difficult to predict the weather more than a week in advance. And this problem isn't going to go away. It is fundamental to our relationship with the universe. Given enough time, small, unnoticeable, unmeasurable, unknowable factors get magnified again and again, slowly, until eventually their impact is vastly significant and our predictions today are hopeless. Neil deGrasse Tyson mentions this in his brilliant Death by Black Hole, where he points out that the recoil from the launch of a single space probe can influence our future in such a way that in about 200 million years, the position of Earth in its orbit around the sun will be shifted by nearly 60 degrees. Edward Lorenz gave this phenomenon its popular name. Predictability. Does the flap of a butterfly's wings in Brazil set off a tornado in Texas? The butterfly effect. A small change, like a butterfly deciding to flap its wings, can lead to a whole chain of events where bigger and bigger processes change just enough to lead to even more significant changes until finally an entire storm occurs somewhere different or not at all. The discipline that such thinking kickstarted is known as chaos theory. When the present determines the future, but the approximate present does not approximately determine the future. To us, the universe is full of if, but all things considered, we are pretty good at predicting the future and preparing for it. But some things are or were prepared for a future that hasn't occurred yet or never did. 
and knowing more about those things sheds amazing perspective on the limits of our knowledge. Speaking of limits, let's begin with your life. Carpe Diem, an online tool that when given your birth date, uses the latest life expectancy data to give you back a grid of squares. One square represents one week, seven days. The lighter ones are the weeks that you have already been alive. The darker ones are what you have left. Check sleep to see how many of your previous and future weeks will be spent sleeping. Of course, it's just an approximation. It's difficult to know if you will have more or fewer weeks to come. It's hard to know when it will all end. It's even more difficult to document unless you are Reynaldo Dagsa, a councilman from the Philippines who took this photo of his family on New Year's Day at the very same second that he was assassinated. The photo was later used to catch the killer. We can't predict everything, but in the event of an anticipated catastrophic event, severe weather, an incoming nuclear attack or asteroid, how would we all know what was going on? Well, many countries have systems in place to allow them to speak to as many people as quickly as possible. The United States has the emergency alert system. When triggered, the system interrupts all programming on radio and television with messages generated using text-to-speech automated voices. The warning tones are known, so what's kind of scary is that today we can take a peek and see what it would look like and what it would sound like if a catastrophic event occurred. In this example, a nuclear attack that threatened life across the entire country. First of all, you would likely hear sirens. And then, as you went to tune in to, say, TV, this is what you would hear and see. We interrupt our programming. This is a national emergency. The following message is transmitted at the request of the United States government. This is not a test. A nuclear attack is occurring against the United States. Four nuclear missiles have been launched from unknown locations and are expected to strike the United States within the next 15 minutes. Due to the uncertain tracks of these missiles, all residents of the United States should seek out and prepare to take shelter immediately. Stand by for a message from the President of the United States. If a catastrophic event occurred of global proportions, what would humanity do next? Well, there might be survivors, people hidden away in fortresses that we have built like the North American Aerospace Defense Command, NORAD, built into solid granite shielded by steel plating to protect computer systems from electromagnetic pulses and supported on springs so as to safely sway in the event of an earthquake, NORAD can protect humans and equipment from a 30 megaton nuclear blast just a mile away. After the event, it's places like this that would literally be humanity's last best chance of continuing life. 
The Svalbard Global Seed Vault is on the Norwegian island of Spitsbergen. Buried 390 feet inside a mountain, it safely stores and protects 250 million individual seeds for growing plants and crops if their vulnerable living relatives on the surface are all destroyed. Soviet technology existed to put people on the moon. Of course, they never did. If Russia had sent men to the moon, they would have walked around on it looking like this. The Kreshet 94 was designed in 1967, but never used for Soviet manned lunar excursion. Russia did, however, send the first man into space and the first woman into outer space. They also sent the first dog into orbit around Earth. Unfortunately, the dog died soon after launch due to overheating, but later they sent Belka and Strelka, dogs on a rocket full of living organisms that became the very first to orbit the Earth and return to Earth alive. You can still see them today. The Moscow Cosmonautics Memorial Museum has the two dogs preserved, stuffed and on display as physical relics of Earthlings growing up and leaving their planet. I was also lucky enough to visit a restaurant in Moscow with menus, yep, that used Comic Sans. Oh, and I ate a star dog, which in the Cyrillic alphabet looks like it's called Crapdosis. The United States, of course, did send people to the moon, but recently we have learned that NASA, at the time, didn't know with the same certainty as other variables whether the first men on the moon would be able to leave. Just two days before humanity's historic moon landing, William Sapphire was asked to prepare a speech for President Nixon to read on television to the world if Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong became stranded on the moon. 30 years later, William Sapphire explained that Aldrin and Armstrong were supposed to reunite with the command module orbiting the moon. But if they couldn't, and there was a, a good risk that they couldn't, then they would have to be abandoned on the moon, left to die there. And uh, mission control would then have to, to use their euphemism, close down communication. And the men would have to either uh, starve to death or commit suicide. Uh, and so we prepared for that with a, with a speech uh, uh, that I wrote. And uh, the president was ready to, to give that. Luckily, Nixon never had to deliver the moon disaster speech. But to read it today, thinking of those two guys still alive on the surface of the moon, knowing that they will never get back to Earth, is chilling. Included in that speech were these lines. Fate has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. These brave men, Neil Armstrong and Edwin Aldrin, know that there is no hope for their recovery, but they also know that there is hope for mankind in their sacrifice. In ancient days, men looked at the stars and saw their heroes in the constellations. In modern times, we do much the same but our heroes are epic men of flesh and blood. For every human being who looks up at the moon in the nights to come will know that there is some corner of another world 
that is forever mankind. And that's what I took away most from my trip to Kuru. Space isn't just a place for zero-g tricks or imagining sci-fi technology. Space is ever-expanding and full of corners of other worlds that could one day become mankind's, if we choose to. And that doesn't minimize Earth. The Vega rocket I went to see sent up satellites designed to test electric solar wind sails for interplanetary travel, as well as satellites built to analyze the health of Earth's vegetation or to predict natural disasters. Just as our bodies benefit from having doctors and instruments beyond them that can probe, investigate, and diagnose, so does the Earth. Launch pads like the one in Kuru I got to visit are really just hospital waiting rooms for Earth, a place where our planet can wait for researchers and scientists to put their tools, their instruments, into use, into orbit. We may never know if something will or will not happen, but by pursuing space, corners of other worlds, we gain a perspective that can help us shrink the size of that mysterious and often frightening if. And as always, thanks for watching. Hey Vsauce, Michael here. No rocks from Mars have ever been brought back to Earth, and no human has ever touched anything on Mars. But that's about to change. National Geographic has asked me and Jake and Kevin to talk about Mars, because they have a show coming out soon all about how we are planning to turn Mars into a home a place where humans will soon be living and working. It's a plan set to become a reality in the 2030s. That's cool, but beyond just how, there are everyday life questions raised. We would be literally beginning society all over again on a new planet. Whose laws will Martian colonists follow? What kind of watches, clocks, and calendars will they use? And what will be lost if we as a species gain Mars. Is it okay to touch Mars? What will its flag look like? In 1998, Pascal Lee designed a flag for Mars that was flown at the Hutton Mars Project Research Station, where how humans might live and work on other planets was studied. The flag is a nod to Kim Stanley Robinson's famous Red Mars, Green Mars, and Blue Mars trilogy. Should we have the technological and political ability to do so at some point in the future, we could terraform Mars from a red planet into a green with life and then blue, watery, Earth-like one. This flag has since been used by a number of Mars exploration societies and was even flown into space aboard Space Shuttle Discovery by astronaut John M. Grunsfeld in 1999. That all makes it a pretty good contender to be the first official flag of Mars. The Outer Space Treaty, of course, prohibits national appropriation of celestial bodies, but it doesn't necessarily stop private individuals or companies from doing so. 
But since it takes months at best to actually go between Earth and Mars and minutes to even communicate at light speed, how would and who would enforce laws on Mars? If Martian colonists did things that we here on Earth disagreed with, what could we do to pressure them otherwise or punish them for being criminals? One idea, extraterrestrial liberty, is to just give up control and release those headed to Mars from all current Earth-based laws their nationalities hold them to. To allow them to become Mars citizens, able to make laws, elect, live, and die the way they want, free from any currently existing state. That might be reasonable, but it raises another question. When? When is Mars now? What time is it there? For colonists on Mars, an Earthwatch would be of very little help. A day on Mars, the time it takes the planet to turn around once, sunrise to sunrise, is about 2.7% longer than on Earth. I mean, that's pretty close, but over time it adds up. Gradually, an Earthwatch on Mars would drift, and the time it said would tell you very little about night and day on the red planet. To combat this, scientists on Earth who work with robotic rovers on Mars use Mars time. They actually live by it. You can download a program that tells you solar times on Mars or do what many scientists have done. Get yourself a watch that runs 2.7% slower than usual. If every second, every minute is 2.7% slower than it should be, it'll be perfect for matching Mars's rotation. That could spell trouble for Martian colonists, though, who wish to tune into live events on Earth, like sports or award shows. But again, given the immense travel time between the two, Earthlings and Martians may find that having similar timekeeping systems just isn't really that necessary in their everyday lives. Okay, right now on Earth, it is, um, 2016. As we know, one trip through all the seasons from now will have been a year. But in that same time, Mars will have only traveled part of the way through its seasons. If Martian colonists continue to use Earth years, that's okay, but it would mean that for them, years would feel a bit arbitrary. They wouldn't contain environmental cycles like ours do. Perhaps if they feel disconnected and emancipated from Earth calendars, they'll just use their own Martian year system as well. A few such calendars have been proposed, some divided into familiar week and month lengths, but with about twice as many of each per year. The thing, however, that fascinates me most about putting humans, living things on Mars, is a more touching topic. Literally, humans will likely touch the red planet in our lifetimes, and the first to do so will be famous. But jokes on them? <laughs> I mean, we, me, you, we're all already touching Mars. Let me ask you this, where did you get that body? That one you're in right now? It's made of atoms and molecules, but they come and go. You eat and breathe and absorb things, use them for a while, but eventually shed or exhale or otherwise pass them through. A month from now, your skin will be completely different skin, all new cells. The red blood cells you've got now will only be with you for about another four months. Like a water wave, you're a temporary arrangement of stuff, a really neat thing that dirt does, 
But not all of this dirt that you are, the dust in From Dust to Dust, is Earth dirt. New stuff is always falling to Earth, anywhere from 5,000 to 300,000 kilograms of space rock, dust, debris, asteroid fragments a day, some of which inevitably winds up being you, part of your body for a while. Now, that may sound like a lot of material, but compared to the mass of Earth, it's small. Some of these ET rocks are debris that's been floating around our solar system since the planets formed. Some has come from asteroid collisions. Some has even come from interstellar space beyond our solar system. What's neat is that because atoms and molecules are so small, even the tiny amount of interstellar material landing here adds up to a lot at the atomic scale. Ask a physicist estimated that if only 0.01% of all the extraterrestrial material falling to Earth comes from beyond our solar system, and even if only 10% of that stuff is water, that would still mean that 50 billion, five zero billion with a B, of the water molecules in your body right now as you watch this video were in interstellar space fewer than 1,000 years ago. Some of the space material falling to Earth comes from planets like Mars. When powerful enough impacts occur on its surface, Martian material can reach escape velocity and begin an interplanetary journey. Rarely, but occasionally, this journey terminates on Earth. It's been estimated that Martian meteorites only fall to Earth about once every 50 years or so. That's a long time in human years, but in planet years, that's nothing. Your physical body right now likely contains billions of atoms that used to be on Mars and arrived here on Earth in the last 1,000 years. If you consider stuff from Mars that's been here on Earth for less than a millennium as being Martian, well, it's tenable to say that you are 0.000000000000000001% Martian. But before you get too excited, there's a difference between Martian debris that was roasted and exploded in our atmosphere centuries ago and actual still on Mars material. The difference might be small or it might be big. When Apollo 11 astronauts returned from the moon, they didn't splash down and then run into the arms of family members. Instead, they were locked away in quarantine for three weeks, just in case the moon harbored any kind of previously unknown or unthinkable life form, an organism or virus that could have come back to Earth with them, one that Earth life had never encountered and thus never been naturally selected to resist. The threat of a moon bug pandemic wiping out life on Earth was just large enough that NASA took precautions. Though later, Buzz Aldrin admitted on Twitter that their quarantine facility wasn't perfectly sealed. Luckily, no moon germs escaped and infected all Earth life, probably because there weren't any to begin with. After Apollo 14, the moon quarantine requirement was lifted because it had become sufficiently clear that the moon was devoid of life. But Mars? <laughs> well, we still don't know exactly. We haven't found macroscopic life on Mars, but the possibility of tiny things hasn't yet been ruled out. 
and the incredible consequences contamination could have means it remains a serious concern. There's even an advocacy group of scientists from all over the world called the International Committee Against Mars Sample Return. But it's not just bat contamination that matters, the transfer of extraterrestrial organisms to Earth. There's also forward contamination, the transfer of Earth organisms to things in space. Any life that might currently exist on Mars could be incredibly vulnerable to things we here on Earth barely notice, but accidentally bring there. How sad would it be to one day find life on Mars, only to realize that it's all dead? Everything it had to teach us about itself, about Mars, about the solar system, about life, wiped out just a few years ago by a virus stowed away unbeknownst to us on one of our robotic missions. Extremophile organisms have been found that may be able to survive such a trip. Life here on Earth may have even arrived from space in that way, a concept called panspermia. <laughs> so should we be scared of monsters beyond our atmosphere? I'm reminded of the glowworm. In their larval stage, the glowworms stick to the tops of caves and leaves, usually above water sources. Their glow resembles the night sky, the tempting expanse of other worlds beyond our own. Like us, bugs are attracted to this vista, believing it's a way out of the cave. Of course, it's not. The glowworms dangle sticky mucus strings from their perches, snares that capture their prey. Are the real stars no different? A clever trap that keeps alien predators fed? Probably not. But that hasn't stopped space agencies like NASA from forming divisions like their Office for Planetary Protection, a group that oversees plans for missions that might bring Earth and alien life into contact. Currently, all missions to Mars must satisfy the Coleman-Sagan equation. This sterilization restriction works to ensure that the probability of us contaminating places like Mars with foreign earthly organisms is not zero, but at most one in 10,000. That was considered acceptable given the number of Mars missions we'd probably do before fully understanding its exobiology. So far, we have no evidence that anything is alive on Mars right now, or has ever been. But that brings us to ANSMET, the Antarctic Search for Meteorites, an effort that since 1976 has found more than 20,000 extraterrestrial rocks in Antarctica. The first one they found in Allen Hills in 1984 was special. For one thing, it's believed to have originated on Mars. It's estimated that about 17 million years ago, this piece of rock was blasted off the surface of Mars by a meteor and reached terminal velocity about 5 kilometers per second, fast enough to leave Mars entirely. After flying through space for a very long time, 13,000 years ago, it got captured by Earth's gravity and fell to our planet's surface. 12 years after its discovery, the presence of what looked like microscopic fossils were discovered on the rock. Could they be evidence of Martian life? The claim didn't convince everyone, but to this day, the structure's exact origins haven't been explained. 
how exactly to tell whether they're caused by living things isn't agreed on either, but the finding was a major event in the field of astrobiology and the public's understanding of it. The discovery was possibly so momentous that U.S. President Bill Clinton gave remarks about it, saying, Today, Rock 84001 speaks to us across all those billions of years and millions of miles. It speaks of the possibility of life. If this discovery is confirmed, it will surely be one of the most stunning insights into our universe that science has ever uncovered. After his statement, these are the two questions he was asked by the press. Did he believe abortion rights were under attack? And where did he get his tie? The thing is, alien nanobacteria don't wear ties. They don't legislate or govern us or control our lives or look anything like us. If they exist, we'll most likely be in control of them and probably actually not even notice them under our boots. So does protecting or preserving them not matter? I mean, should, should we just not let them get in the way of our progress as a species? Well, that's a fundamental question that touches upon what we want our purpose to be in this universe. Labeling parts of Mars don't touch as parks would be a great way to preserve it as it was before we came so that our grandchildren and their children can see what Mars was like for, well, most of human history. Others have argued that we shouldn't go at all, that Mars is best left to itself. Humans ruin things, and what right do we have to alter Mars if we can help ourselves? Still others say, why stop at natural parks? If we find viable life on Mars, it may be struggling to survive. A rare relic, uh, perhaps from a time when Mars was more hospitable to life. They argue that we should help change Mars so that those remaining Martian organisms can thrive and multiply and be their best selves. With our technology, intelligence and sapience, we perhaps alone in the solar system have the power to help them, and we should help ourselves to Mars second. These aren't just hypothetical philosophical problems, by the way. With plans for manned missions to Mars just a bit under two decades away, they're questions we will actually need to answer quite soon. Should humans go to Mars? It would be a great way to spread out, to diversify our habitats so we're still around should anything happen to Earth. And of course, it does give us more space for more people. But for what? <laughs> Ultimately, Jupiter doesn't care if there are 7 billion humans or 7 trillion. The volcanoes of Io will continue erupting whether or not we write any more poems about love. If humans were wiped out today. The fundamental forces of the universe wouldn't change, and distant galaxies would continue their journeys into the abyss, beyond the observable universe just as they already are and always will. What good is life to the universe? Perhaps it has none. But we are possibly its greatest and only hope to find out. We may not treat life as well as we could, but whatever this darned life thing is, keeping it around might very well be up to us. We owe it at least that much. And as always, thanks for watching.
For more on how we plan to make Mars home, check out National Geographic's new global event series, Mars, premiering Monday, November 14th at 9, 8 central. Hey, Vsauce, Michael here. Skeletons are scary and spooky, but you know what else is? Teenagers, their attitude, the way they dress, and the music they listen to. Can you even call it music? Kids these days. But what are kids these days? What's with all the concern? And what's a generation? Why do we think that coevals, groups of people of roughly the same age, act so much alike? The sheer number of articles and papers and internet posts published daily comparing then and now, both sincerely and ironically, is astonishing. We can't seem to get enough about kids these days and just how different and awesome it was to be a kid back in the good old days. Generational labels make human history look ordered and discreet instead of scary and messy. They also have a delightfully suspicious tendency to flatter those using them. George Orwell put it well, Every generation imagines itself to be more intelligent than the one that went before it and wiser than the one that comes after it. There's a name for this sentiment, juvenoia. Sociologist David Finkelhor coined the term, it means an exaggerated fear about the things that influence kids these days. Juvenoia is a concerned disappointment that because of iPhones, or the internet, or TV, or rock music, or those pesky horseless carriages, the world just isn't fit for kids like it used to be. Generational conflict really has been going on for that long. After all, honor thy father and thy mother was an ancient commandment for a reason. In the 4th century BC, Aristotle remarked that youth's mistakes are due to excess and vehemence. They think they know everything. Here's an engraving from 1627 admonishing the now compared to the ways of old. In the early 1900s, Romain Roland complained that the new generation of young people were, quote, passionately in love with pleasure and violent games, easily duped. New people and the direction society is headed in has always been seen with some disapproval. XKCD famously collected a brief history of juicy examples. In 1871, the Sunday Magazine published a line that may as well have been written today about texting. <clears throat> now, we fire off a multitude of rapid and short notes instead of sitting down to have a good talk over a real sheet of paper. And the Journal of Education in 1907 lamented that at a modern family gathering, silent around the fire, each individual has his head buried in his favorite magazine. Point is, there's nothing new under the sun. Not even the sun, in fact. The sun is believed to be a third generation star. This constant cycle of generation clashing can sometimes sound like a broken record. Are these commentaries really providing insight into the minds of future leaders? Or prematurely judging a coeval based on how it acts as teens? Despite the incessant concerns otherwise, the proverbial kids these days seem to be better off than ever before. 
Drug use is down, exercising is up, math and writing proficiency have increased, crimes committed by young people have decreased, hate comments reported by children have dropped, the number of 9th to 12th graders who have been in fights has dropped, and the number of teens who fear attacks at school has dropped. But still, juvenoia persists. But why? Well, it kind of makes sense. I mean, children are the future of a species, so it's reasonable to assume that nature would select for features in a species that cause adult members to prefer the way they were raised and distrust anything different. After all, parents, by definition, were a reproductive success for the species. They made new members. <laughs> so whatever choices and influences brought them to that point must have been good enough. Any deviation from that could be a problem. So worrying about the young may have been naturally selected, just like eyes and fingers and breathing air and pooping. But here's the thing. Our brains don't accurately remember the past or apply memories fairly or rationally. That kind of thinking has a plethora of interesting causes. First, at a social level, concerns for and about the youth are often exaggerated because exaggerating is effective. You'll generate greater mobilization around a cause if you can convince people that we're on the cusp of a crisis here, folks. Also, our increasingly connected world means more potential contact with people outside the family, the tribe, the neighborhood. Even though juvenile problems often involve people the juvenile already knows, stranger danger is a more powerful fear. My kids have good friends who are good influences, so why should I worry? Can be replaced today with, even so, people you don't know are threats, so worry. Other reasons for juvenoia are personal. Often, it's not so much the world that's changed, it's you. Are drivers today really worse than they were when you were young? Or do you simply have new responsibilities and experience that makes you more aware of dangers that were always there? We remember the past abstractly. There just isn't enough room in our brains or a vital need for complete veracity when recalling things. Thus, we're more likely to remember the general way we felt in the past without the petty annoyances more salient still for the present. Secondly, loss aversion and the endowment effect. People perceive a loss as greater than an equal gain. In one famous study, when asked how much they would pay for a coffee mug, people gave prices that were significantly lower than what people given the mug first said they'd be willing to sell it for. This may play a role in how we value what we already have, our memories and favorites over what's new. There's even neuroscience backing up why new stuff seems so bad to you. It's called the reminiscence bump. Storage of autobiographical memories, memories about yourself, increases during times of change. Incidentally, this is why you remember exciting things as lasting longer than they really did, but rarely remember times of boredom in detail. I've discussed before the ways in which this causes us to feel like time slowed down during particularly quick but significant events. Anyway, adolescence and early adulthood, particularly ages 10 to 30, 
are major times of change. Many important things happen during those years that define your identity. So it's no surprise that along with things that have happened recently, memories from this bump period are greater in number and more emotional. The books, and songs, and movies, and slang words, and behavior you loved and used during this time correlates quite well with what you will, when you're older, remember the most fondly. As we can see, juvenoia is natural. In fact, a healthy dose of it is important. There are plenty of things we should be fired up about improving. What's sometimes lost, though, when explaining that juvenoia occurs in every generation is the fact that the nature of juvenoia hasn't always been the same. The generation gap of antiquity, or of the 1300s, wasn't the same as it is today. The more rapid speed of change may be one reason, but another is the appearance of a new type of creature around the turn of the last century. The teenager. The word teenager wasn't even used as a stage of life until 1922. John Savage's Teenage is a fantastic read on how human society sort of accidentally invented the teenager. You see, as factories generated new unskilled jobs, young people could acquire something neat, their own money. Suddenly, marketers realized that products could be made for the youth. They were no longer stuck with what their parents decided on. Also, the surge in immigration at the time highlighted for a new generation the view that identity wasn't something you're stuck with. It's fluid, personal, decided. Furthermore, calls for compulsory education around that time, that is, making it the law that children go to school, further solidified the segmented identity of children by forcing them out of the world at large and into commonplaces surrounded mainly by their coevals. In that environment, they could develop behaviors and opinions and culture shared just with themselves. Compulsory schooling also increased literacy in adolescence, which gave them all the more power to hear stories written for them and about them in books they could buy with their own money. Kids these days suddenly weren't just young humans waiting for life experience. They were separate beings with their own culture and voice, a fact that caused juvenoia to change from the Oedipal skirmishes of the past into the full-fledged panics we know and love today. This brings us to a bigger question, though. Sure, you may say, that makes sense, but even someone who didn't grow up in this society could plainly see that in the old days, culture wasn't as dumbed down as it is today. Things used to be made by the elites, for the elites. Now they're made for the masses who demand sensational, atavistic pablum instead of rational, critical thought like scholars and, well, you know, me. Those examples sure are convincing, but the plural of anecdote isn't data. You can pick different examples and argue the opposite point. Mozart wrote poems about farts. There is amazing work, and there is simple work made at all times in history. In fact, as Stephen Johnson points out in Everything Bad is Good for You, if anything, when given the chance to buy or participate as they choose, the tendency we find in humans is a preference for more cognitive demands, for smarter entertainment.
What it takes to keep up with the increasing density and intricacies of narratives and media these days is impressive. To be fair, of course, beneath the stimulating organization, there's no substance anymore, right? I mean, here's what one noted critic said of today's easy, brainless mass culture. We do not turn over the pages in search of thought, delicate psychological observation, grace of style, charm of composition, but we enjoy them like children at play, laughing and crying at the images before us. Eh, wait, sorry, that's something literary critic G.H. Lewis wrote about Dickens in 1872. Point is, taste is subjective. Art to one person is garbage to another. You may dislike the language or violence or morals depicted on TV today, but there's no denying the fact that entertainment, including popular entertainment, is requiring more and more thinking on the viewer's part than ever before. Johnson created this visual comparing narrative threads in episodes of different TV shows over time. And this shouldn't be surprising. Our brains crave stimulation. A lump that sits and stares into space isn't naturally selected for in the same way as a brain that learns and synthesizes and organizes. Now that entertainment can be made for niche audiences and watched and rewatched on demand and discussed ad nauseum online, that natural desire can be sated by media. Johnson goes so far as to say that reruns have made us smarter They've enabled entertainment to be made that rewards being watched and thought about over and over again. The names and stories and relationships and dramas people today have to keep straight in their heads to be functioning consumers of modern media are impressive by historical standards and affect more of us than ever before. Johnson points out that in his time, Dickens was only read by 0.25% of his country's population. While today, innovative shows like The West Wing or The Simpsons easily reach 20 times that proportion. Okay, but how about this? Where are the Mozarts and Dostoevskys of today? Well, they're probably here. But the reputation of a Dostoevsky is built by time, something the judgments of contemporary artists haven't had enough of yet. Finally, when it comes to judging works that merely tease the base emotions, let's not forget the quote from Unamuno I've discussed before. More often have I seen a cat reason than laugh or weep. Cats and humans are curious and can problem solve, but only humans can laugh at fart videos. So what really ought we be treasuring? There's a problem here, though. Although writers like Johnson have been able to put forth convincing arguments that movies and TV have been serving more and more cognitive complexity, they've failed to find the same evidence for pop music. Nearly all studies on the subject have found that unlike other forms of popular media, pop music has in fact become, since the 1950s, less complex in its structure and more homogenous. Mathematically speaking, more pop songs today sound alike than they used to. <laughs> What's up with that, music? Well, here's the thing. Pop music is just one type of music being made today, and its role, what its listeners want from it, and who they are, are much more specific than the wider spectrum of genres a movie theater or Netflix caters to. 
A pop song needs to provoke quick moods, stick in your head, and fit anticipation and payoff into a fairly regular amount of time. There are only so many ways to do that. So perhaps pop music producers have simply gotten better at scratching the specific itch they're challenged to scratch. I mean, imagine criticizing doctors for using penicillin nowadays. Ah, back in the good old days, treatment was innovative. There were leeches and onion plasters, amputation and good luck charms. Now it's all just penicillin, penicillin, penicillin. It's all the same. Criticizing popular music for all sounding the same ignores the sameness of every pop song's goal. But what about generations? What are they exactly? I mean, humans don't have babies all at once every 20 years or so. New people just keep showing up, about four more every second. But that said, there are biological changes humans go through as they grow and age, roughly creating a few life stages. All right, now this list of generations goes all the way back to the mid 1400s. It applies mainly to the Western world, especially the US, and is the work of William Strauss and Neil Howe, whose landmark 1991 book, Generations, contains one of the most influential and ambitious generation theories of our time. These are the guys who coined the term millennial, by the way. They set forth and have continued to expand a theory that society follows a predictable cycle of moods, each lasting about 20 years about how long it takes for everyone in a life stage to move on to the next. The social mood and the common life stage a coeval experiences it during are what distinguishes one generation from the next. Strauss and Howe call each social mood a turning. A turning describes the way society will act by either establishing, accepting, challenging, or fracturing in lieu of established customs. To illustrate the cycle, let's start just after the American Civil War in the so-called Gilded Age. Here, we find American society in the first turning, what they call a high. This is a 20-year period when society is largely in agreement about the direction it wants to go in because it recently coalesced in the face of a crisis. Institutions are strong, and thus, young adults are cautious and conformist. But then, people tire of social discipline and call for reform, a period of awakening occurs. The majority consensus is attacked in the name of greater and broader individual autonomy. The distrust in institutions left in the wake of an awakening leads to the next turning and unraveling, where in place of broad cultural identity, moral crusades polarize society over what should come next. Finally, a renewed interest in consensus that responds to crisis by banding together occurs. Society's mood shifts to a belief that coalescing and building together are the answer. The cycle then starts again with a high. The majority agrees on society's directions and institutions strengthened during the crisis until people tire of this majority structure and an awakening leaves those institutions weak and armed with less public consensus. This is followed by an unraveling where individuals polarize over moral issues and the youth raised in the previous two atomizing moods feel alienated. Which brings us to, well, today. 
Strauss-Hau's theory, if true, tells us that this will be an era where society will band together and build institutions from the ground up in the face of crisis. It's not clear what that crisis will be, but if their theory has predictive power, the climax of that crisis will occur in 2025. The whole theory is a great way to learn about U.S. history. Al Gore once even gave a copy of Generations to every member of Congress. But it is unscientific and unfalsifiable. You can find a pattern in anything if you pick and choose the right examples. As for the usefulness of its generalizations, well, Philip Bump points out that the U.S. Census Bureau only recognizes one official distinguishable generation baby boomers. Do you think you are Generation X? A millennial? Generation Z? Well, that's fine, he says. You can call yourself whatever you want. It's all made up. <laughs> the baby boomers are a cohort, significant in that no matter where they were born or who they are, their size alone determines a lot about their path. But other population segments based solely on birth year just don't mean much. A more useful way to divide them into cohorts might focus on some other, less age-related trait that correlates better with behavior, wealth, region, sexuality, etc. Regardless of its accuracy, there's one thing generational theory and its critics do at least agree on. People change as they age. And the larger society surrounding people influences the degree to which generations feel conflict. So, Generational thinking is a kind of guidance. It's one that helps take us on a journey, manned by an ever-aging and changing crew. Some crews are different than others, for sure. And you need worry and concern to stay safe. But at the end of the day, it's still the same boat and the same waters. Generations and juvenoia are like what Picasso said about art. They are lies that tell the truth. And as always, thanks for watching. Here's a bonus. While doing research, I found a website that will allow you to find what word was first used the year you were born. It's pretty cool. It's also a dong. That's right, something you can do online now, guys. In fact, here's some dong news for you. The shows that you know and love on the Vsauce network now have their own home, where they can flourish and be who they want to be. The channel's name is Dong. Go over there right now to check it out. We've got some cool things from the internet. That's what Dong's all about. It's an internet safari. It's neat things that we all find as we research for these episodes. So I'll see you over there on Dawn, and thanks for watching. Hey Vsauce, Michael here. If you rearrange the letters in William Shakespeare, you can spell here was I, like a psalm. In the King James Bible, in Psalm 46, the 46th word is shake, and the 46th word from the bottom is spear.
William Shakespeare was 46 years old when the King James Bible was completed. Is this just a coincidence? <laughs> yes, it is. Given enough searching, enough words, enough data, you can eventually find and should indeed expect all kinds of neat coincidences. It's just probability. Here's another good example. Think of a card, any card, value and suit. Okay, got it? Mentally focus on that card. Deliver it to my brain using ESP. Whoa, huh. I, I got it. Here it is. Amazing, right? Now, think of another card. Are you ready? Okay, it's, um, well, it's this one, right? One more time. Think of a card. Really think about it. And there it is. Impressed? <laughs> Probably not. But approximately seven of you might be. You see, there are only 52 cards. If each card is equally likely to be thought of, I had a 1 in 52 chance of guessing your card, and about a 1 in every 140,000 chance of doing so three times in a row. If, say, a million people watch this video and play along, after three tries, you could expect about seven people to be left who had their imagined card pulled by me each time. Except not. More than seven, actually. You see, there's even more magic happening here. And by magic, I mean math. When asked to arbitrarily think of a card, studies have shown that people tend to think of certain cards more often than others. These are the results from a study of a few hundred people. Hearts are named a bit more often than the other suits. The three cards I drew are the top three most often thought of. But would it be more amazing if it actually was magic? Yes and no. Obviously, magic as a performance is important. It reminds us that being stupefied and curious and humbled is fun. Without a visceral reaction to the unknown, would we care to learn or study or investigate? But yet, explanations don't dull mystery. They empower the mystified. Explanations aren't ends, they're end-trances. The start of an ability to use, reassemble, and reimagine new things out of what you now know. Here's a cool fact. If you divide a deck of cards exactly in half, there will always be the same number of red cards in one half as there are black cards in the other, no matter how mixed up the cards were before you began. It's not magic, though. It's just math. Think of it this way. Half of the cards in a deck are red, so all the red cards could fit in one deck half. This means that the number of cards in a half that aren't red, that is, are black cards, are necessarily equal in number to the reds that must be in the other half. Knowing this, you can devise an even neater trick like the really cool trick Matt Parker just showed off on his channel, which you should subscribe to, or like this one. Take an easier to count number of cards, like say 10, and then place another 10 cards on top, but face up. Have a friend shuffle the whole mess however they wish. Cuts, messy cuts, riffle, 
smooshing, they just can't cause any card to flip over. Then ask them to hand you the pack and behind your back, even while blindfolded, show them that you can separate the deck into two halves with the same number of face-up cards. Every time. Over and over again. All you have to do is count out 10 cards. The number of face-up cards in one hand will equal the number of face-down cards in the other. Flip one of the packs over and all of its face-down cards will turn into face-up ones. Ta-da! The face-up counts are now equal. Here's another trick that shows off some neat mathematical properties. To help me with this trick, I've brought in Vanessa from the YouTube channel BrainCraft. It's an awesome channel. Please go check it out. But first, check out this trick. Are you ready? I'm ready. We've got ten cards on the table. Five diamonds and five clubs. Ace to five of each. Go ahead and put the clubs on top of the diamonds. Face up? Face up, yep. All right, now, I am going to mix these cards up, okay. all right? And you are gonna use your ESP abilities to get the cards <laughs> paired up at the end. Sure. Are you ready? Okay, I'm so ready. I'm gonna mix these up, take some off the top, uh, move them to the bottom, take mm -hmm. some cards from the bottom, and just like, I don't, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut these as well. Let me know where you wanna cut them. Okay, there. There? There. Okay, we'll cut the cards there. Uh -huh. And then I'm gonna take half of what's here, five cards and deal them down. One, two, three, four, five. I'm gonna set the other five right there. Okay. Now we have two piles and it is your turn to start swapping. We got four swaps you can make and a swap involves taking the top card mm -hmm. and moving it to the bottom. Okay. All right. Now you can divvy up these four swaps however you want. You can do four here, you can do two and two, one and three, whatever you want. Okay, I'll do um, three here and one here. Interesting. Yeah. Do All it, right. You do it. I'll do it. Okay. One, two, three, and then one swap here. Good. Yes. Now, we're left with these two cards on top. I'm mm -hmm. going to take them off and set them right here. Okay. Now, three swaps. Uh, all three on this pile. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. It's your choice. One, two, three. Okay. And the top two cards, I will peel off and we'll set aside. All right, now two swaps. Um, two here. Two here. Mm -hmm. All right, one, two. Once again, the cards that are on top get peeled off and set aside. One swap. And one here. One here, mm -hmm. okay. So I'll take these away and we're left with two cards. Will they be the same? Will they be a match? Let's find out. <laughs> what? Okay. Whoa, don't say okay yet, because things aren't okay. Something magic <laughs> just happened. We've got all of these cards we set aside, and yet they're all matches. Both aces right there. What are these? Both fives. You also matched up the threes and, of course, the fours. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. But not you, Vanessa. <laughs> you. Mathematics. Every time, no matter how your friend decided to swap, matching pairs will be together. How? Well, it's all about cycles. If you have some cards in a particular order and you cut them somewhere, doesn't matter where, you will only change the positions of the individual cards, but not the sequence. The next card down will always be the next card in order, with the whole thing wrapping back around. It helps to think of the order not as a tower, but as a clock. 
Now in the trick we just did, each card's match is always just five cards away in the sequence. Because five happens to also be the number of cards in half the pack, dividing the pack in half leaves pairs lined up, no matter how we've cut the deck. In the trick, however, we added a bit of extra confusion by dealing the top half down onto the table. One, two, three, four, five. This has the effect of reversing its order. Now, instead of having the same position in each pack, pairs have mirrored positions. The number of cards below any given card in the bottom pack is the number above it in the top pack. This balance means that swapping all the cards above a target in the bottom pack leaves it on top, and swapping the number of cards below it from the other pack leaves its match on the other top. Of course, the number of cards above and below a target card in the bottom pack is just the number of all the other cards in that half, which is the total amount in each pack minus one. That's why with five cards in each pack, we started with four swaps. Then after each pack had shrunk to four, we did three swaps. As long as the total number of swaps adds up to the pack total minus one, we'll have matching pairs on top. You can extend these facts about cyclical sequences to other tricks of your own imagining. This is one of my favorite tricks. It comes from Peter McOwen on the STEM Maths Magic channel. Trick time. Once again, I'm joined by Vanessa from BrainCraft and Ace through Five of Diamonds and Ace through Five of Clubs. Vanessa, could you please take the Ace through Five of Diamonds and mm -hmm. put them on top of the clubs, but flip them over so they're face down? Okay, so we now have a kind of messy little deck here where all the black cards are face up and the reds are face down. But we're gonna mix these up a lot. We can even riffle shuffle this. Um, riffle shuffle? Riffle shuffle, where you kind of divide it in half like this, and then, uh, well, it's hard to do with few cards, but you oh, know, you do this little like, yeah, yeah. and then you do a little, you know, very fancy. Yeah, thank you. Um, where would you like me to cut these? Uh, there. Right there. Yeah. Okay, cool. Now, there's another way you can kind of mix up and deal cards. It's called the down-over deal. It goes mm -hmm. like this. One card goes down, the next goes over. One goes down, one goes over. Down, over, down, over, down, over, until you're done. Mm -hmm. Okay? But now it's your turn. All right? I'm going to go two at a time, and you're going to tell me whether these first two cards should be dealt down or should be turned over. Okay. Uh, down. Down. What about these down. two? Down. Over. Over. These down. two? Down. Over. Over. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, let's go four at a time. Okay. okay? One, two, three, four. Should these go down or over? Over. Over. What about these four? Uh, down. Down. And the final two? Over. Over. Now, we can do this as, lo as, as often as you want. I can keep uh -huh. doing this. We can do two. We can do four at a time. How do you feel? Uh, let's do it once more and do two at a time. Two at a time, okay. Yeah. Uh, down. 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 You're getting fast. Over. Down. Down. Okay. All right, now I'm going to uh, make two little piles, like a mm -hmm. little book, all right? Mm -hmm. One, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, one. Okay, now, Vanessa, should I close this book like this or like this? Like this. All right, there we go. Now, you had completely free choice here. Mm -hmm. You made a lot of different decisions, somewhat arbitrarily. 
But yet, like oil and water, the black and the red cards have separated and only the reds are face up. <laughs> I knew this would happen. <laughs> but it's not because of magic. It's because of math. Here's how it works. The red cards all start out face down. The black cards face up. No amount of cutting or riffling will change the fact that reds are face down and blacks are face up. But when you down over deal, you cause every other card to have its original facing direction reversed. Down, over, down, over, down, over, down, over, down, over. This alternating sequence is maintained through any number of cuts because it's cyclical. This is the key to the trick. Because when we alternatively deal cards into book halves, one pile will contain cards reversed by the down over deal, the other cards not reversed. Depending on how you close the book, either all reversed cards are unreversed, or all unreversed cards are reversed. Either way, the original division by color comes back. The swaps missed things up by introducing an illusion of control. But in reality, the swaps are what are known as a Hummer deal. A swap flips the facing direction of the cards you flip, but simultaneously moves them to the correct category, preserving the sequence. As long as you swap an even number of cards, the facing direction of all of them is reversed, but the positions they wind up in are still correct according to the sequence. Finally, let's end with something popular that also sounds cool on the surface until you go deeper, understand it better, and it winds up being, well, even cooler. The number of different ways 52 cards can be arranged. There's obviously a lot. The top card could be any card, so there's 52 different possibilities. Any remaining cards can follow, so there are 51 possibilities for the next card. 50 for the third spot, 49 for the fourth, and so on. Multiplying all of these numbers together gives us how many unique ways 52 cards can be arranged. 52 factorial is a gigantic amount. So large, in fact, every time you shuffle a deck of cards well, smoosh it for a few minutes or riffle it seven or more times, chances are you have put those playing cards into an order that they have never been in, in the entire history of cards, or humans, or the universe. Seriously. This is because 52 factorial is 8.0658 times 10 to the 67th. In comparison, the observable universe is only about 10 to the 18th seconds old. Even if you had been properly shuffling a deck every single second since the universe began 13.7 billion years ago, you still, to this day, wouldn't have even come close to assembling every arrangement possible. But even that doesn't paint the whole picture of just how big 52 factorial is. Scott Cheapheel wrote what, in my opinion, are some of the most mind-boggling visualizations of the size of 52 factorial. Imagine setting a timer to count down 52 factorial seconds. While the timer runs, stand on the equator and wait, one billion years. After a billion years have passed, take a single step forward, 
and then wait another billion years before taking a second step, and so on. Once you have walked all the way around the Earth, take a single drop of water out of the Pacific Ocean, that's five hundredths of a milliliter, and set it aside. Now continue walking at a rate of one step every billion years, removing one drop after every journey around the entire Earth, and by the time the Pacific Ocean is completely empty, put a single sheet of paper on the ground. Refill the ocean and keep going. Until the stack of paper reaches the sun, at that point, how many seconds will be left on the timer? Will it be zero, a few hundred, a few billion? No, there will still be 8 times 10 to the 67 seconds left. You have barely made a dent. If you start all over again and do that whole thing a thousand more times, you will only be a third of the way done. Luckily, Scott has a great idea for how to pass the rest of the time if you're bored of paper and water and walking. Instead, he says, deal yourself five cards every billion years. When you finally deal yourself a royal flush, buy a lottery ticket. If the ticket wins the lottery, throw a single grain of sand into the Grand Canyon. As soon as the Grand Canyon is completely full of sand, remove one ounce of rock, that's about 28 grams, from Mount Everest. By the time Mount Everest is leveled, take a look at the clock. This is what will be left. Do the whole Royal Flush Lottery Ticket Grand Canyon Mount Everest thing 256 more times, and then, and only then, will your timer have reached zero. That is how big 52 factorial is. It's pretty big. But now think about this. The number of possible people, the number of different humans there could be, is, well, even larger. What that means is that even though you will probably die, most people, including possibly the smartest or funniest or most annoying possible person, won't even get to die like you do. They won't even get to be born. So, I'm glad you were. And as always, thanks for watching. Hey, Vsauce, Michael here. Where is your mind? Is it in your head? I mean, that's where your brain is, and your brain helps you remember and plan and make judgments and solve problems. But you also remember and plan with phones and notes and calendars, and you make judgments and solve problems with all sorts of things. Ugh. You know, when you think about it, the brain is really just a wet lump of fat and protein no firmer than a blob of tofu. But the mind is huge, 
It's an ever-expanding organ of tissue and wood and stone and steel and people because of communication. Communication allows us to even make other people extensions of our minds. We can access their memories and perceptions and knowledge by simply asking or not. I don't need to learn how to fix a car and practice medicine and vulcanize rubber or remember everything. Other people are doing that for me just as I do things for them. We are a species of individuals that is also one big interdependent lumbering growth, a frantic blur of flesh and concrete, a techno-sapien powered by imaginations and passions made real by a hallowed faculty we call reason. Reason, it is said, guides us to truer knowledge and better decisions. It's allowed us to increase life expectancy, suffer less, work together better, and it's bound to take us further and higher until the end of time. Or is it? The organ we use to reason takes millions of years to evolve, but the fruits of reason grow rapidly and are ever accelerating. Over the next four decades, we are expected to build the equivalent of another New York City every month. And more concrete was installed in the last two decades outside the United States than the U.S. installed during the entire 20th century. This growth means that quality of life around the world is rising. It means that electricity, manufactured goods, food, comfort, and transportation are all becoming more common and accessible. But there are hints that reason and logic are struggling against the complexity of it all, against our growing dependence on the things we've built and their unintended consequences. Nearly every part of life as we know it today involves or relies on a process that releases molecules with lopsided electrical charges. This property causes them to absorb and re-emit thermal radiation, pinging it around so that it escapes into space more slowly. Having more warmer parcels of air means stronger weather events. They can't be pinned to any particular extreme storm, but they make extreme storms in general more extreme and frequent. What's at stake isn't just bad weather, it's disaster. It's more lives lost, more property lost, it's more droughts, more hunger, more famine, more people needing refuge, and an even greater reliance on the very things that caused the problem in the first place. In total, we release about 51 billion tons of such gases every year, and we need to release zero. But how do you rethink everything. Who gets to direct the costs and trade-offs? How do you achieve collaboration between nearly every local and national government when what works in one place won't work everywhere, when decisions affect jobs in one place and food in another, when not just things need to be rethought, but also habits and traditions and values? How do you achieve consensus when a problem isn't obvious to the senses, is far away in space and time, requires solutions that affect people in different ways, and as a product of science always carries some uncertainty? The philosopher Timothy Morton calls something so massively distributed in time and space, and so viscous, so sticky that it adheres to all that touch it, 
a hyper-object. Every civilization that grows at the speed of reason must at some point face hyper-objects. In fact, the fact that we still haven't found evidence of intelligent life beyond Earth has been brought up as evidence that some sort of great filter might exist that few civilizations manage to get past. That a hyper-object like our impact on the planet might be such a great filter is not a new idea. What it might take to solve it is the topic of Bill Gates's How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. And I decided to do this video in partnership with him and his team because the way we deal with hyper-objects reveals a lot about the mind. It's easy and common to think that we would all be better off if everyone was just more rational, right? But what if reasoning wasn't built for what we've become? Let's begin by looking at behavioral inertia. Behavioral inertia is the tendency to keep doing what you're already doing, status quo bias. It can be a frustrating bias if you desire change, but its origin isn't a flaw. If an organism has managed to survive long enough to reproduce and provide and care for its offspring, then the state of its world was sufficient for its genes to spread. That's all it takes to persist. The types of organisms we see around us will naturally be those that managed to persist and didn't, after reaching that point, rock the boat too much. So behavioral inertia can help slow down the accumulation of unintended consequences and the loss of ideas that work, but it can also slow down innovation and adaptation. If the environmental impacts of our society were more immediate and unignorable, it wouldn't be so tempting to apply this inertial break. But emissions are invisible, and their consequences aren't immediate or local. They impact future people and people far away, those who are different from us, poorer than us, people we will never meet. This may be one of the first challenges advancing civilizations face, wielding not just the power of technology and distributed cognition, but also the responsibilities. Extending the mind is really cool, but whether or not a species can extend their empathy might be a great filter. Surely, reasoning will allow us to do that, right? Well, what is reasoning? Well, reasoning is a way of making inferences. An inference is a piece of new information extracted from the information you already have. Now, we make inferences all the time. Every living thing does. For example, we don't have measuring tape tentacles that shoot from our eyes. And what actually enters our brain is just a 2D image. But nonetheless, our brains can infer depth by attending to cues like stereopsis, occultation, perspective, parallax, size. Now, when this happens, we accept it as reality. We aren't aware of the visual processing that made it possible, and we don't have to be. If, however, we do consciously consider why a certain conclusion was reached, well, then, boom. That's reasoning. Reasoning is the process of making inferences not automatically and instinctively, but by looking at facts and seeing what conclusions they support. When Eratosthenes calculated the circumference of the Earth to within a percentage or two of the value accepted today, 
He didn't do it by measuring the Earth, and he didn't just perceive it as self-evident. No, he inferred it from what he knew about shadows and how long it took camels to move. Stories like that make it easy to believe that reasoning evolved because it supercharged our cognitive abilities. I mean, it clearly moves us towards truer conclusions, better decisions, and knowledge no other species could infer. Attempts to describe the rules of good, orderly reason became logic and mathematics, concepts so general and abstract that while we were still animals, <laughs> armed with them, we were no longer beasts. But that's the rub, isn't it? If reasoning is so great, why are we the only species with such a sophisticated grasp of it? And if its purpose is truth and good judgment, why don't we all agree on everything? It's tempting to think that disagreements happen because, well, I am being rational, but those who disagree with me are being irrational. Ugh! If only people would just use logic and reason. What's happened to the world? Well, that's a fair complaint if you're arguing over logic puzzles, but the world is not a logic puzzle. This, however, is one. Paul is looking at Mary. Mary is looking at Peter. Paul is married. Peter is unmarried. Is a married person looking at an unmarried person? Yes, no, or not enough information to decide? Now think about it. The answer is yes. You may have thought there's no way to know because we don't know if Mary is married. But look, she either is or she isn't. And if she is, well then she, a married person, is looking at Peter, an unmarried person. If she isn't, then Paul, a married person, is looking at her, an unmarried person. So no matter what Mary's deal is, the answer will be yes. When people get this puzzle wrong and the correct answer is explained to them, they almost always immediately see why it's right and change their mind. Life is not always like that. Let's take a look at a logical syllogism. All elephants are awesome. Michael is an elephant, therefore Michael is awesome. The conclusion is logically valid. It follows from the assumptions. But are the assumptions true? No. I am not an elephant. Also, this premise is subjective. I mean, what does it mean to be awesome? Can we measure it with an awesomeometer? So you can see why, when analyzing something like our impact on the planet, logic can only be a partial tool. If some people have more to lose than others, who gets to decide which assumptions are fair? Still though, it would seem that reasoning should be able to help here. If each of us would just attend only to the facts, surely we'd all recognize the same reasonable approach. Problem is, that's not how reasoning works. Since the scientific study of human reasoning began about a hundred years ago, it has been found again and again that not only are we bad at reasoning, lazy and biased, but we actually seem almost programmed to be bad, like the flaws are intentional. In an episode of Mindfield, I once used a magician to pull off a little experiment. 
He asked people to look at two faces and choose which of the two they would prefer to work with, placing their preferences in one pile and those they rejected into another. Then the pile of people they picked were shown again, and each person was asked to provide a reason for why they chose that person. But with a little sleight of hand, the magician managed to sneak in some of the faces they had just rejected. Amazingly, the majority of people didn't even notice the trick. Not only that, they were able to effortlessly explain the reasons behind their choice. A choice they never actually made. Remembering faces you've only seen briefly isn't the easiest thing to do, but other studies have shown that even if the task involves answering questions about one's political beliefs, things we would seemingly have a firmer grasp on, nearly half of participants will fail to notice that the answers they gave have been reversed when they're later asked to explain them. Point is, we seem practically built to give reasons for whatever we think we must, and not the reasons we actually used to reach a conclusion. What if we don't even use reasons to reach conclusions? Well, let's talk about intuitions. Our brains have evolved over millions of years to react to the world around us in brilliant ways with little to no input from us. For example, when you notice that someone is upset, you don't consciously think, Hmm, okay, so, uh, well, their eyebrows are kind of in that position and their speech seems curt. Their posture is, <gasps> these are all reasons to conclude that they are upset. No, instead, the belief that they may be upset was just apparent. You intuited it. You know it without exactly knowing how you came to know it. The mood-recognizing parts of your brain operate in a way that is opaque to your awareness. But if someone asks you, uh, why do you think they're upset? You can nonetheless produce all sorts of reasons. Some may have actually been the ones your brain attended to, but they're all just guesses. Instead of using reasoning to come to conclusions, we use conclusions to come to reasons. Now, to be fair, we can go the other way. We love puzzles, and when we don't have a strong intuition either way, we can sit down and mull over various reasons to think one thing or another. Our love of puzzles suggests that reasoning has a survival value. Organisms that found it pleasurable would be more likely to use it. But when we reason alone, even when we have no motivation to reach any particular conclusion, we still exhibit deep biases that seem less like mistakes and more like features. For example, it's been shown that between two otherwise similar products, people will prefer to buy the one with more functions, even if they don't want those functions, never plan to use them, and think they're all pointless and overly complicated. Why? Well, it might be that we find such decisions easier to justify to others. We won't wind up being potentially embarrassed when someone asks why we didn't get the product with more functions. Well, after decades of findings like this, Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber began to hypothesize that reasoning didn't evolve to help us make better decisions, but instead to help us be social. Humans inhabit a cognitive niche on this planet. We aren't strong or sharp or hidden or venomous. Instead, our advantage comes from cognition, reasoning, and cooperation. We can plan hunts, build traps, and engage in coordinated strategies that can be tested and modified on the fly. 
not by millennia of evolution. Reason allows us to do those things. It's hard to convince people that your intuitions are true, but if you can give reasons for them, it's a whole heck of a lot easier to convince people that you're right. Being able to argue over what the best thing to do is, is vital when it comes to coordinating action. Reasons also allow us to justify ourselves in the eyes of others, to explain who we are and express the kinds of reasons we like, what others can expect from us, and what we will likely expect from them. This social theory of reasoning helps explain why two people can earnestly and rationally arrive at two different views. They each have their own unique brain and values and dispositions and experiences, and those are what drove their thinking. The reasons they give may or may not be the real reasons they came to their conclusions, but it's the best anyone can do. The social theory also explains why people tend to give such weak reasons for their beliefs at first, or when their intended audience doesn't need much convincing. It would be a waste of time and cognitive resources to construct Grand Slam reasons for everything I said and did and thought when it wasn't necessary. Instead, I can offload some of that work to other people. For example, if I say, I want to have lunch at ABC Burgers, well, my friend might respond, ah, no thanks, I had burgers yesterday. And I might reply back, oh, well, that's no problem. They also have hot dogs and great salads. But if my friend said, ah, no thanks, I'm trying to spend less money eating out this month, I could reply, oh, well, ABC Burgers is really cheap and I've got a coupon. Now, what's going on here is that I'm providing reasons only as my friend presses for them. If they press harder and harder, my reasons will become better and better until either I win them over or we come to some different, more harmonious decision. So when people appear to be lazy reasoners or to have bad reasons or none at all, it's usually just the case that they're using reason as it evolved to function, socially. It starts off weak, improving if others push it and always tailoring its work to the intended audience. The social theory of reasoning can even explain the existence of biases that otherwise make little sense. For example, it would seem that in coming to conclusions about the world, it would behoove an organism to pay particular attention to information that went against what it believed. I mean, that way, they would be able to adjust their beliefs, making them truer, more general, and more complete. To a certain extent, that is what happens, but not always. When someone does their own research, they often come to the very conclusion they wanted in the first place. This is called confirmation bias, our tendency to look for, prefer, and interpret information so that it confirms what we already think. It frustrates our ability to accept new, inconvenient data and is a problem for the intellectualist view of reason. If reason is for finding truth and making better decisions, why would it have this major weakness? Well, because, the social theory says, reasoning is a group activity. Let's say that I think option A is true and the best, and you think option B is true and the best. Well, if we both researched both options and sifted through reasons in support of both options, we would both have twice the work to do than we would if instead I simply came up with reasons for why I was right and you attended to reasons for why you were right. 
the confirmation bias at least halves the cognitive work that must be done. Now, sometimes a lone reasoner will have a bad idea, or a decent idea with some bad parts. The reasons they have to justify for and argue for it will be sufficient for them and those who intuitively agree, but they may be weak. However, subjected to deliberation, put forth into the machine of collective thought, it can be evaluated and judged not by one mind or a group of minds thinking alike, but by something very special, the crowd. Humans have long known of the wisdom of the crowds, the phenomenon by which a collection of many people can process information into a conclusion better than any one person could do alone. It's why we don't trust big decisions to a single person, no matter how educated or powerful they are. Instead, we ask a group of people to deliberate, to reason together. In this way, the biases and errors of each is smoothed out and the decision wiser. In a famous example, it's been repeatedly shown that if you ask a bunch of people to guess how many jelly beans are in a jar, you'll find that the average of all their answers is closer to the real number than any one individual was alone. What happens is that although some people may guess a number that is like way too big, that mistake is balanced out by the fact that others will inevitably guess a number that is way too small. Altogether, their disagreement evens out into spectacular accuracy. We have now arrived at the problem. Reasoning evolved to be used socially, where many different perspectives had to all deliberate towards a common conclusion. Such contexts are becoming less and less common, and it is becoming easier and easier to simply be a lone reasoner, justifying only a particular viewpoint without doing the harder work of deliberating and acting. The internet gives voices to more perspectives than ever before in our history, but it also makes it easy to disengage from accountability and to find places where everyone believes what you do. Furthermore, because of technology, we confront more issues more rapidly than ever before that we are expected to have opinions about, and the growing complexity and specialization of the modern world makes it difficult for each of us to have well-informed, prepared reasons for the accelerating accretion of intuitions we must form. In response, we look for people who can defend our intuitions for us. The reasons they give don't have to be good, just good enough that we can feel like justification exists. In the past, unconvincing reasons had to be painted on sandwich boards, but now the democratization of communication means that even unpopular, unconvincing, nonsensical ideas can be presented with the same trust-inducing typefaces and professional look as common ones. People can challenge the weak reasons of others, show them to be contradictory and produce better reasons for their side, but to what end? It's all preparation for a debate that never comes. We each play a very small role in deciding how society is run. Even if a good faith discussion between a representative slice of America came to a resolution, if nothing can come of it, why not just throw shade and sick burns or revel in the pleasure of reasoning by treating everything like a big giant puzzle? It's easy to think that it doesn't matter. Because after all, 
those in charge, the brilliant scientists and powerful billionaires will surely come to the rescue. Some giant techno-salvation is surely on the horizon. Perhaps it is. But everything we know about reason suggests that those implementing it should be held accountable by as many different perspectives as possible. Leaders could lead deliberations and be elected for their ability to moderate social reasoning. But that's boring. Why lead when you could follow? Look at what some people believe and generate reasons for why they're right, and they'll love it. Of course, the hard work, the real work, the work that truly elevates us on this planet is not in telling people that they're right, but in trying to convince others. And in doing so, use reason as it evolved to be used. The future of reason may in fact be the past of reason. In practice, what does all this look like? Well, some researchers have gone so far as to recommend national deliberation days where citizens celebrate by literally joining small groups and talking through their opinions and comparing reasons. Tests of such strategies have shown that a return to the small, targeted discussions our reasoning abilities evolved to excel in leaves all participants with a greater understanding of not just what they believe and why, but about decisions that could actually be made and actions that could be taken. Others have gone even further, recommending that the future of reason at its best is the construction of a lotocracy. A form of government where decisions are made not by elected leaders, but by people literally chosen at random. We decide the fate of a person this way. Why not the fate of the people? What if decisions were made not by politicians alone, but at least occasionally by groups of actual citizens representing differences in thought, not just geography, who were brought together and paid for their time to learn from experts and then deliberate on an assigned issue until a conclusion was reached or, at the least, a recommendation? Instead of being motivated by re-election, money, attention, and power, individuals chosen at random would have only their conscience to guide them. Special interests and corporations wouldn't be able to cozy up to those likely to be elected, because if any one of us could someday serve, they'd have to cozy up to and protect all of us. Instead of the learning and deliberation being done by people you will never meet with offices and buildings you can't access, gradually, over time, more and more of your very own neighbors would have had the honor. People chosen at random would obviously lack the same celebrity status and mandate that elected leaders cultivate and achieve. And iconic figures we relate to aren't bad. But our understanding of reasoning is making it more and more clear that we evolved not to leave the thinking up to a few great minds, but to the authority of the great mind, the lumbering organ of thought that is everyone and everything. This is, in fact, how democracy first worked. Lotteries were used to fill many political positions in ancient Athens. Aristotle explained that the appointment of magistrates by lot is thought to be democratic, and the election of them is oligarchic. An oligarchy is government by only a small number of people. 
look, regardless of how reason is brought back to its social roots, if we can build more and better arenas for deliberation and use them to apply reason properly to hyper-objects like the impact of our emissions on the planet, we'll have taught one heck of a lesson to people a hundred, a thousand years in the future. I like to think that although widening participation will be difficult, it might provide us with a kind of existential security. The impact of emissions on our planet is not going to be the last hyper-object we face. If we can do a good job with it, maybe far in the future, when our civilization has advanced to the point at which, I don't know, people can be quantumly recreated or something, they'll look back at our time and say, hey, let's bring them all back to life. We could use the cooperative abilities they had then. Ultimately, the old saying that history is the great teacher isn't a bad guide. We will all someday be teachers ourselves because someday we will all be history. We will someday be the ancients and we can choose what that will mean. And as always, thanks for watching.